Like, who do we think we are? It's all supposed to be like easy sailing. That is not the story of human history. Hello, and welcome to the Shiftmakers podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I am your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shiftmakers. Elizabeth Lesser is a best-selling author, speaker, and co-founder of the Omega Institute, recognized internationally for its workshops and conferences in wellness, spirituality, creativity, and social change. She has given two popular TED Talks and is also one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100. In our recent discussion, we began with Elizabeth's thoughts on our current collective reckoning with gender, race, and political divides in this country, all on the landscape of the COVID-19 pandemic. She goes on to share the comfort she gains from historical reflection and the humility she brings to current movements for change. She tells the origin story of her New York Times bestselling book, Broken Open, as well as the themes in her latest book, Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the Human Story Changes, about how our history, belief systems, and world would be transformed when we honor women's voices, stories, and perspectives. We also discuss her thoughts on creating your own personal inner toolkit and her adopted meditation of do no harm, take no shit. Elizabeth is also a dear friend and neighbor. She actually lives right down the street from me. And as colleagues, we've worked together in many capacities over the years. I participated as faculty on several workshops on their magical Omega campus in Rhinebeck, New York, covered their incredible Women in Power conferences, and I've interviewed her many times over the years for my books and a variety of media outlets because she is such a fountain of inspiration and wisdom. One note, this interview took place a few weeks before the invasion of Ukraine, which I know she is deeply troubled about, as we all are, and would certainly have commented on as she's been writing thoughtful posts about it on her social media. One of my first just sort of general questions for you is what has been on your mind during this kind of very poignant moment that we're experiencing in history? Like, what have you been pondering? Probably exactly the same thing everyone else has been pondering. If I've ever felt the sort of interconnectivity of all of us, both our depth and wonderfulness and the fragility of what it means to be human, fragility in our health and in our connection, but also fragility in our mental states. I've felt within myself the best of myself coming to the fore and the worst. And I've seen that in humanity. People under stress do all sorts of noble and terrible things. And on a personal scale, I've really monitoring my own like annoyance level and incapacity to handle everything. And it's given me a window and empathy into the craziness going around all of us. So I've tried to stay in touch with how we are all so similar during this time in our depth and in our shallow patheticness as human beings. And to keep my empathy muscle strong because Gosh, do we need that that empathetic response as we become more and more siloed into us and them and the other and this and 
to try to understand what's going on in other people's hearts. I've been following, you know, your writings, even on social media. I mean, you've been doing some really beautiful and moving and really like candid sort of reflections. How, you know, have you coped with this this time? And what have you learned through this experience? It's been a perfect storm. So this experience includes so much. It includes COVID, which has been the most kind of obvious obstacle we've been dealing with. But there's been so many reckonings as well, gender, racial. I mean, if you look back on the past three years, it's it's just been stunning what we've gone through with the rise of the Trump administration, and then January 6th, and then Biden coming in, and the pandemic, and George Floyd, all the the gender Me Too stuff, like I have to remind myself all the time, first of all, historically, there's been other jam-packed transitional phases in human history. That to be historical helps me. It's actually part of my spiritual practice. It gives me perspective. And there's lots of levels of perspective. There's the vast soul perspective to put our lives in context of the universe and eternity. That's the ultimate spiritual practice. Like you are a small being having an experience on earth and you have an eternal soul. Make sure you tap into that perspective every now and then. I love that part of of my practice. But there's also the historical perspective, which really helps me because it helps me see, first of all, this is not the first time that we've been reckoning with every single one of the subjects I mentioned, pandemics, conflict between nations, racial reckonings, gender reckonings. Our ancestors and forebearers have gone before us. We stand on their shoulders. We owe it to them. We owe it to the next generation, especially with climate change. So I like to remember this is not the worst time. It's not the best time. We've gotten through other ones. We'll get through this one. Sometimes these horrible times are the labor pains of amazing transformations and next evolutionary leaps. That helps me. That is one way I cope to realize this is our time. Like, who do we think we are? This is all supposed to be like easy sailing. That is not the story of human history. Put your big girl pants on and get to work. No, I see it that way, too, because I remember hearing early on in the pandemic, somebody made the statement that sort of this is Mother Nature sending humanity to our rooms to like think about what we've done and reflect. What is Mother Nature trying to teach us? And as you're saying, like, I do think it's been a time where sort of everybody's questioning. We've seen so many cracks in our institutions and systems you know, everything's kind of like in the rubble, like, what is Mother Nature trying to teach us? And also, what opportunities do you see to sort of like reimagine and rebuild from here? The first preface is, thank you for having me on the show. (laughs) You jumped right in. And I just want to say how much I admire what you do. And I thank you for turning to me from time to time and being in conversation. So that's number one. The other one is, I am 69 years old. There's a bit of hubris in someone from my generation answering the question, what's next? Because I really think it's people coming up who have to answer that. I always want to hear from them. What do you think is next? Because one thing I've noticed that comes with age is is somewhat of a conservative streak. 
Now, for me to say that is somewhat ridiculous because I'm such a progressive and a real conservative would laugh at me saying that. But as some of the fast and furious changes have been happening over the past few years with gender, with climate change activists, with um, race activists, I've been like, wow, this is new. I don't fully understand this. And so I actually think my role is to get out of the way because I certainly was a kid in the 60s and 70s who was turning the world upside down. And young people are turning my world upside down and I may not understand it. I actually think part of wise aging is to realize, oh, this isn't my time to turn the world upside down. I am handing it over with grace and faith. What should we have learned and what are we learning? Uh, someone younger than me may say something different. Mm -hmm. And in which case I would like get out of the way and say, yeah, what she said um, or what he said or what they said. When I'm feeling hopeful, I actually am more than 50% of the time, but there are despairing days when I'm not. But when I'm feeling hopeful, I think we are learning our values have been so incredibly screwed up. Mm -hmm. This work work, work, did not tending to the home fires, not appreciating the people who are the caretakers of the world, always looking to the heroes as being the dot-com, Dow Jones, space exploring monster, <laughs> growth, growth, growth. I, I, I do think people are saying, wait a minute, this is unhealthy. And I kind of actually even appreciated the discomfort of COVID life because I got to see, no, I don't want to commute an hour and a half in my car every day and get home after my kids have gone to sleep. And uh, no, uh-uh, not going to keep doing that. And it's disrupting everything. And I say, yay. <laughs> I agree with that. I do think that there's, I mean, I don't, we're still sort of in it. So I don't think we are even able to track how many different ways that it has, you know, shaken things up. And I do think allowed for like new conversations and new possibilities to emerge if we sort of like seize the opportunities in, in many ways. I thought a lot about your book, Broken Open, during this time. And let me just say, which I, I think I've said to you before, you had given me your book in galley form during a time right before before an unforeseen crisis happened in my life. And I was so grateful to have that book. It was my guidebook for just getting through it, but also as Bro Broken Up and Talks about growing through it. And I've now given that book to so many people. Can you distill that message and describe, you know, what, in terms of what the book is about? Because I do think people are going through all different types of challenging times during, as you're saying, kind of whatever the, the pangs that we're all going through collectively and individually. How, what is this, this different framing that we can have when a time threatens to sort of break us open? I've always written my books and, and even before I became a writer and was the co-founder of Omega Institute, and I would curate what kind of conferences should we have, what kind of workshops, I've always figured if I'm going through something, I'm not that different or special from anyone else, we're all going through it. So write, write what you know and write what you experience. And for the people who are also going through it, they will find it, you know, don't try to go out and invent something that you haven't experienced. So what I was experiencing, and it's 
17 years ago, I wrote that book, if you can believe it. What I was experiencing during the time that I wrote Broken Open was the aftermath of a really difficult divorce. And I was struggling to do what all the great spiritual and ethical and moral and philosophical teachings tell us to do, which is to grow from your hard times. You have a choice. A really hard time comes to you personally or collectively as a human family. You can either break down and become bitter and close up, or you can say, what have you come to teach me? I know we learn through difficulty. I've heard this is true, but I'm having a hard time doing it. How can I break open? Like not try to skirt around it, not pretend it isn't happening, not to put on a, a strong face, but to really feel it, to feel it fully and to pray to grow from it. So I wrote from my own experience and I told the stories of other people who were going through or had gone through even more seriously traumatic situations with the kernel of similarity being an intention to grow, to grow in kindness, in wisdom, in forgiveness, in um, maturity and an expansion of consciousness. So that's what the book is about. It's both a memoir and a teaching like, and here's how I did it. And here's how lots of other people did it all the way back to mythologies that that human storytelling has relied on forever. That's what the book's about. Well, I recommend it to everybody. And you just talked about myths and storytelling. So I I can't help but think about your latest book, Cassandra Speaks, which is also so, so powerful. And why did you decide to write Cassandra Speaks? What were you hoping to accomplish through that book? Well, the subtitle of Cassandra Speaks is when women are the storytellers, the human story changes. Mm -hmm. I've always loved storytelling. You know, my first book, The Seeker's Guide is a very research-driven, thick book looking at if you say you want to grow psychologically and in health and spiritually, like what is the vast array of systems and schools and techniques available to us? That came from my work at Omega Institute. Mm -hmm. And I put a little bit of my own story in and people would say to me, Oh, I actually loved the when you told your own story. And I thought, okay, well, I guess with the next books, I'm gonna I'm gonna rely on storytelling more because if you check out all the great religions, it's parables that people learn from stories. Mm-hmm. I could say to you, do you know the Bible? And you could say, Well, I know the story of Adam and Eve and Jesus on the cross and maybe uh, Noah. We know some stories. Mm-hmm. So I have made a study of the great stories of the world, whether it's the Greek myths or the indigenous myths or the Bible or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita. I have done a lot of studying of it. And it will not surprise you or anyone listening. First of all, they're all stories. They, they are not real. They didn't like, most of them are made up or yes, Jesus was real, but a lot of storytelling around it. They were told by men. Men have been the scribes throughout history. 
And I'm very careful in the book to say, every story told by a man isn't bad, but it's only half of our value system. It's only half of our perspective. Mm -hmm. And women's perspectives are often different. And is that nurture? Is that nature? I don't really care anymore whether it's socialized into us or it's a combination of hormonal effect on our brains. It doesn't matter to me. There's an enormous group of people who identify as women who have a very different way of perceiving reality and how we should go forward and what matters in life. Oh, Sally Roche Wagner, she said, history isn't what happened. It's who tells the story. So there are so many stories. Let's take Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Remember, men told and retold and retold and then formalized the story of Adam and Eve, which is the garden was perfect. It was God and Adam and some animals and tons of food and everything was great. And then God decided Adam needed a helpmate. So he makes Eve the first woman. And suddenly she gets curious and everything goes wrong. Her curiosity creates sin and they have to leave the garden. And since then, it's been shit. And if you look at other mythologies, like Pandora was the first Greek woman, same thing. She was the first woman created actually as a punishment and sent to men and told, you better behave. And by the way, don't open this box, which was really a jar, but don't open it because stuff will happen, but don't open it. And then as the story goes, although there are other versions of the story, but as the story we know goes, she did open it because curiosity, women should not be curious. Do not follow your longing to understand or to grow wise or anything, woman. Just do what you're told, but she didn't. And then evil was sent into the world. There's a beautiful end to the Pandora story that's never told, which is she shut the lid just in time for Hope, whose name was Elpis, the spirit of hope, to be trapped in the jar. So she held back hope for us when everything gets really hard and tough. But if women had joined in storytelling, and it's not just Greek and Mesopotamian and biblical times, it's everywhere, Chinese stories, African stories, Many of the indigenous storytelling is more gender free, but most of the ancient stories we still live by were told by men and women take the role of the sinful one. That sticks to us, Marianne. Like you may say, but I don't know those stories. I don't read the Bible. I'm not religious. Doesn't matter. That's in our DNA. So you want to understand why we walk around women with so much shame and guilt and like, there's something wrong with me. It's old. And we can do as much therapy as we want, which is good. But collectively, as women, we need to free ourselves from those stories and free the world from those stories. Season two of Shiftmakers was brought to you by the Shift Network. Shift offers courses, programs, and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world. Visit theshiftnetwork.com to learn more about their online courses, summits, and events. You know, we've done a, a fair amount of interviews, and I was looking back on one of our interviews where we were talking about the fact that what does it look like if 
the story was told by half women or there was more equality. We've never tried women. And I remember at the time you saying like, it was hard for you to even articulate something we've never experienced or seen. Are you able to more easily sort of envision what the world would look like if it were constructed that way? Yeah, because I think we're making fantastic progress. Backlash is always the sister of progress. Don't ever think, oh, we did that. Me too happened. Yay, it's all over. No, check out what happened with Me Too, an enormous uprising against it. And that seems to be the way humanity evolves, you know, big swings into into change and then big like, no, too far, too fast, too much, and then swinging. But there's always some traction. So I do feel the past five years especially have just intensified and quickened women being storytellers. I mean, everything from more women in television and novels and to the Me Too movement, where that is a story we are Mm -hmm. telling. The previous story was everything from that didn't happen to you. You're Mm -hmm. so hysterical and emotional. That didn't happen Mm -hmm. to, yeah, it happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It happened and we are not going to take it anymore. That's a huge story change. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we need to keep it going and give men a chance now to come into that storytelling with us. And there needs to be ways of transforming and reparations and forgiveness and moving forward. And I think we will get there. But you know, there's a, a, a story It's a science story that I feel one thing the pandemic did is undoing this or beginning to undo the story of fight or flight. There were studies done in the 30s by the the head of the psychology department at Harvard, Walter Cannon. He brought people into the lab because he wanted to know what is the typical human reaction to stress and conflict and trauma. He simulated these events and he measured people's blood and hormone responses. And he came up with the term flight or fight. Under stressful situations, humans either aggress or withdraw, either flee or like psychologically withdraw. 2007, a woman at UCLA, Shelley Taylor, another doctor of clinical psychology, noticed something that won't surprise you, that all the people in the lab were men in Dr. Cannon's experiments. There were no women because in those days, women were not used in any kind of medical laboratory experiments. Just it's very recent that women were even brought in for heart disease and cancer. So she replicated the studies with women and she came up with the term tend and befriend under stressful situations. Yes, sometimes women fight and flee, but not primarily. Our first response, this is blood level hormones is to tend to the most vulnerable, children, the older people, or to create circles of belonging to try to ameliorate some of the stress. You're having a hard day, you don't withdraw, you call two of your friends, did this happen to you and how are you? You know, you you create these belonging circles. That's tend and befriend. And it is time for us to validate and dignify and make noble and cool the tend and befriend muscle so that men can develop theirs too. And so that heroes don't only fight, but they also tend and befriend and mend that it's heroic 
to be a tender and a befriender. And I saw that happening a lot during the pandemic, that first responders were suddenly also grocery store clerks and nurses and home health aides. That is so true and um, something I think about a lot and was actually related to what you're saying, that if we're going to even get more more women in leadership and power, that it's not just about doing power the way it's always been done, but actually, you know, bringing something new, bringing a, a new sense of, of how you would model those traits. And you write about that also in the book. And of course, been doing these visionary conferences on women in power for so many years. How do we need to sort of redefine how we think and use power, whether a woman or just as, as you're saying, that we all can benefit from thinking about this. Younger people are moving quickly on the gender spectrum. And sometimes when I say this, you know, that Dr. Taylor brought women into the lab and hormones, there's a like, but wait a minute, don't tell me just because I identify as a woman, I'm a gentler soul. So I want to just put the caveat in there of I'm not just talking about women and estrogen and we're nice and they're aggressive. I'm saying on the spectrum of gender, we have chosen one type of man as the idea of what power looks like. And without making that kind of power, which is kind of forward going, I'm a leader, you all get behind me. I don't want to say that's irrelevant and out of date and no one should ever be the kind of leader who says, I'm the decision maker here and I know what's best and this is what we're going to do, folks. Hey, sometimes a leader has to do that. That is one tool in your toolbox of what it means to be a leader and to be a hero. And by a leader, I I mean, you could be a teacher, a mother, a nurse, a doctor. Leaders are people for whom other people are saying, hey, what should we do here? How do we get from here to there and make it better? doesn't matter what arena you're in. You don't have to be a CEO, corporate leader, or somebody leading troops. Anyone who wants to take the responsibility to make your area of the world a little better and different and thriving. So there is, yeah, that type of heroic guy on a horse with a sword. But there's also the tenders and befrienders, the ones who say, I want to share leadership as much as possible. It's very infrequently that I, as a leader, I'm going to have to make the sole decision. Let's try to create some kind of empowered team here where you feel important, seen, heard, valued, and creative. And I think women have a lot to bring into that new way of leading, collective, respectful of everyone, sometimes hierarchical, sometimes not hierarchical at all, open to the collective. One of the things that you also talked to me, you mentioned toolbox, because I know in the book, there's this toolbox for inner strength. And one of the first things is also women like actually coming into their own sense of power and their voice. You had mentioned about needing to sort of cultivate your relationship with your inner voice because you need to tune out, you said like bad advice that that comes at you from society and others in your life. Ariana Huffington, she called it also the obnoxious woman in your head to even realize that sometimes you're the one. It's not anyone's fault. It's just that, you know, you take in so many messages. But so what would be your advice on creating our inner toolkit? What's in your toolbox that has specifically or, or particularly helped you? I call it innervism because there's activism. But we know as activists, we can become so burned out 
And I use a quote from the philosopher Nietzsche, who said, be careful when fighting monsters, you don't become one. And when we're in arenas where rage and anger are often our fuel, very understandably, we can be consumed by it, and then we help no one. And so I call innervism, because I want to give some heft and weight to what inner practice is all about. It's not only to become more happy and peaceful and calm, which are all wonderful things, but it's also so that our work in the world is sustainable for ourselves and and other people too aren't put off by our extreme rage and anger, which can happen. I mean, I've had it happen in my own life. People are like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the feminist, you know, like the waters part and everybody runs away. For the sake of the work, I want to be the kind of person that people welcome into their own transformation because that's what works. Sometimes the most rageful, angry among us are exactly what we need. But most of the time, it would be good to do some work on the self. So in that toolbox at the back of Cassandra Speaks, I I included a meditation that this is the one that everybody talks about. And I, I call it the do no harm, but take no shit meditation. And it comes from a, a, a statue you see in the East a lot of the Buddha or the Chinese goddess Kuan Yin. They're standing with one hand out in the stop position, very strong. That's the, that's the mudra, the gesture of fearlessness in Buddhism. And then the other is like a cup, your hands like a cup holding rain, and it's the tears of the world. It is the gesture of empathy and compassion. And you never see these two gestures alone in Buddhist iconography. There's the strength and the softness together, the, the conviction and the will to get shit done and there's also the empathy and this sense of like, I will stay open to the world. I will not close my heart. So I put some American words to those gestures. And it comes from my own uh, working in healthcare for a long time that you take the oath if you're a, a nurse and I was a midwife or a doctor to do no harm. That's the Hippocratic Oath. In my profession, I shall try as much as possible to do no harm, which is a beautiful oath that it would be lovely for us all to take. In my life, I will try to do as little harm as possible in my words, in my deeds, even in my thoughts towards other people, to do as little harm as possible. But at the same time, if all we do is go out into the world, it's like, I will do no harm. I will be soft. I will do no harm. We often get taken advantage of, rolled over and hurt. So that's why I like to put my hand up in this meditation and also say, I'm going to take no shit. This comes from an actual um, needlepoint I saw hanging in my sister's office after she died. She was a nurse and she had cancer. And it was a needlepoint that said, do no harm, take no shit, the nurse's oath. And so, because nurses take a lot of shit. Anyway, I turned it into a meditation where I sit with a strong back, which tells me I'm not going to take any shit. I belong here. I have valid, strong opinions. I want to have the courage to say what I mean. But at the same time, I don't want to do harm. I don't want my convictions 
to create more harm. So I'm going to try to bring them both to bear and knowing sometimes I will be ineffectual as an activist and sometimes I will not be my best spiritual self. I know I can't get it perfectly, but I'm going to try. And so I practice that as a meditation using my hands like that with my strong back and my soft front. And I've gotten so used to this practice that sometimes if I'm going into a meeting, I'll just take my hands and put them under the table at work in a stop movement and a cup movement. And it will just sort of remind my whole system to do no harm and to take no shit. Well, thank you for introducing my new meditation, <laughs> because actually I was, I've been thinking about that a lot. I, 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 right now it is such an important balance to find between how we can be an activist, speak out, use our voices, protest against injustice, and yet not contribute to more division, more negativity. I do think that having a practice or having something that you say to yourself constantly like that is really important because it's really hard to get thrown off balance in one of those directions. And always being very self-forgiving that we're not saints. The great ones have gone before us. And that's why we hold out people like Bishop Tutu or Thich Nhat Hanh, two of my beloved teachers who died a couple of weeks ago within days of each other, activists who also were grounded in their practice of doing as little harm as possible, but never shying away from taking a stand. I actually had the honor of interviewing both Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Thich Nhat Hanh and wrote tribute pieces to both of them when they passed recently as their common message about the connection between inner peace and outer peace in the world and the vision and principles they both upheld, spreading love, tolerance, and compassion, feel more resonant than ever. As Archbishop Tutu told me, quote, We are all connected. What unites us is our common humanity. We think of ourselves far too frequently as just individuals separated from another, whereas what you do, what I do, affects the whole world. Taking that a step further, when you do good, it spreads that goodness. It is for the whole of humanity. You can find out more about Elizabeth Lesser and her work at elizabethlesser.org and about Omega Institute at eomega.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week for part two of this wonderful conversation. Shiftmakers was created by Marianne Schnall, and season two was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten. Research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Limon. For more information about this podcast or our host Marianne Schnall, please visit marianneschnall.com.